Hey everyone, Kevin Rose here. I am thrilled to kick off this new little adventure. I, I'm joined by Derek Edwards from Collab Currency. Hello, Derek. How you doing, Kev? Good to see you. And Maria Shen from Electric Capital. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, it's great to great to meet you and awesome to jump on this podcast together. I'm excited to do a little round table. Normally, you know, when I do the Proof uh, podcast, it's bringing on an artist, interviewing them, talking about what they're up to. But I have, it's been a while. I think the last time I did one was kind of with DC Investor, where we, we go around and just talk about what's going on in the industry. You know, what's happening? What are our favorite projects that are out there? Um, just anything and everything in the crazy wild world of all things NFTs, especially these days with, with the, the bear market going on. There's a lot to talk about. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you all are joining me and, uh, yeah, let's kick it off. Let's get into some stories and, and chat about, uh, about everything that's going on. Let's do it. I, I can kick us off. Um, I think just to like, to add to the last, uh, point you were making there, Kev, um, it does feel a bit like we are in a, in a retracement of interest, um, whether it's for, you know, reasons related to like public equities or the Crypto space got pretty hot there for a minute, uh, but it definitely feels like momentum has slowed. I think uh, just to like double click on that for a minute, these are my favorite times uh, as an investor, as someone who's yeah. deep in the space. Um, this is when you see builders building really interesting stuff. They're able to kind of look back at the at how the technology was presented and used over the last cycle, start filling in some of the holes, uh, some of the problem areas. Uh, and also, um, you know, you start to see more exploration and experimenting again, that's unrelated to monetization. And so, uh, it, we start to see kind of like the experiments running in the Petri dish again, and, uh, there's, a, there's quite a few of them. So fun, it'll be fun to kind of like talk through some of these and, and, and geek out and nerd out with you guys on, on the stuff we're seeing there on the front lines. I can kick us off with a project, uh, two projects kind of bundled into one, uh, it's it's called nouns and little nouns, and so it may be helpful to kind of <laughs> to kind of start off by just ex explaining the mechanic behind nouns, and then go into little nouns and and kind of the as a derivative project and what it offers. Um, but we'll start with nouns. So this project launched actually last May. Uh, so this was uh, almost a, almost a year ago, or I guess it was August. So uh, this was like yeah. So nouns was August, uh, like August mid August, and so. Um, how, how does it work? So the, the mechanic works like this, a, a generative, uh, a generative PFP, a, a noun in, in the noun style is very emblematic at this point. If you go to nouns.wtf, you can see these generative nouns day by day as they've been, as they've been released. A nouns is generated on chain. Um, and then a, an auction starts and that auction lasts for 24 hours. Um, and what it's done is it's a programmatic auction that allows people to bid and whoever wins the bid, the ETH gets transferred to a treasury and the winner of the bid gets a noun. Uh, and over the last year uh, or about the last year, there's been 333 of these nouns representing 333 days uh, of these auctions. And the treasury at this point is close to 25,000 ETH. And so we're seeing this, you know, it's more of like a decentralized organization, a decentralized group of nouns holders that have uh, direct access to vote and manage that treasury of 25,000 ETH, um, being able to come together and make decisions and um, promote the Nouns brand in really interesting ways and market the Nouns brand in really interesting ways and establish collaborations and build interesting new tech products 
uh, UI layers around the Nouns brand. It's been a, a fascinating experiment in um, like programmatic formation of an ETH-based treasury, of community formation, of identity. These things are now being used as PFPs uh, and also as markers as part of these larger communities uh, that have formed within, within Nouns. Uh, so I guess this has been a fascinating project project to watch. I'm curious if you guys have been tracking this one. Yeah, certainly been tracking nouns for a long time. Um, a couple things to highlight there, and then I'd love to get Maria's take as well, but it's been fascinating to see just how the winning bids have stayed pretty high. I mean, if you go back historically and look through even just the last few, we're talking around 100 ETH per noun that gets auctioned off every single day. Um, and then we should also mention, is it one out of every 10 that goes to the, the what they call like the nounders, like the founders of the nouns? Exactly. Yeah. So dilution is a one every 10 nouns goes to the nouns creators. And so no ETH ever goes to the nouns creators. I think that's an important point. All ETH from these auctions goes straight to the treasury, which is which gets managed by the noun holders. But uh, the auction skips every 10 and that 10 gets generated and sent to, to the noun founders. I see. Maria, do you have a noun? I don't have a noun, but I'm so glad you brought up nouns because I'm really obsessed with this project. I think there's there's kind of two things here that's super interesting. And I think little nouns, like little nouns really compounds on that. The first thing is just this idea of an emissions curve for for NFTs. Um, and how do you thoughtfully expand the community? Um, and so far we've seen expansion of the community through kind of these discrete drops, right? So you have the apes and you have the mutant apes. You have you have kind of these, you have these, um, you have these these drops that happen at discrete points of time. But what I really love about nouns is this very predictable cadence for an emissions curve. So you can see exactly how many nouns you can kind of plan out how many there are going to be. Um, and it's a very, it's a really, really interesting way of thinking about how do you, how do you get more people into the community? Um, how do you expand the community? And then of course, little nouns takes that up to a whole new level where the emissions curve instead of every 24 hours is every 15 minutes. Um, except I think, uh, I'm, you know, the mechanism is something like if someone bids within the last like 30 seconds or a minute, then they extend the, yeah, yeah the time by another minute and a half or something like that. So practically speaking, mm -hmm. it's, it's the emissions curve is more like every 20 minutes for little nouns. Um, but either way, I think it's so fascinating to think about um, what is what is a community like that look like, where you have this kind of rapid but predictable expansion. And then I think, of course, the second thing that's really interesting is this idea of a treasury, which I find extremely defensible um, and interesting in 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 this space. You see it a lot in DeFi, where there's kind of like a protocol controlled value or PCV. Um, but you haven't really seen that that much in the NFT space. And, you know, I, I think this is probably one of the things that could make this project extremely, extremely competitive and defensible going forward, because it's not you, it's not forkable, right? The community could also possibly be forkable, but the treasury fundamentally is not. There's a couple of things I just am so I'm not skeptical of. I just don't know. Hey, help me unpack this here. There, there's two things that come to mind immediately. Yeah. One is now there's little nouns. Of course, there can be little, little nouns that could come out next yeah. week, right? <laughs> and so there's that. I believe they're using the exact same artwork. Is that correct? So, yeah. you know, there is a world where 
I have a, a, a PFP and everyone's like, oh, that person has a noun. It's like, no, actually, I just have a little noun, but you would never know the difference. And it would be verified in, on Twitter or wherever else is its own little, you know, hexagon or wherever you decide to use. And then the other thing I just don't know is like, has the community done anything with the funds? Like, what, what does the community stand for? Like, yeah. what is their mandate? Do, do you have, and I, I don't say that just like, like trying to like do FUD. I really don't know. Mm -hmm. I just haven't spent any time with the community. So I'm curious. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tackle that because these are really great questions, Kev. Um, so as it relates to Lil Nouns, um, the art is actually slightly different and which okay. is actually led for buy-in by the nouns community. So the, the Lil Nouns, as you can imagine, are a little bit smaller. The bodies are more compressed. The heads are a little so bit similar. tiny. They do look very similar, but when you put them up next to each other, and this is not an argument in favor of how far they took these differences, but more just like there is a identifiable visual difference between these things. Mm. Um, I would say they've also received buy-in not just because they changed the art um, and leveraged the same core mechanic by speed but speeding up the cadence they've also received buy-in from the nouns community as opposed to other derivatives project because one in every 10 similar to the one in 10 mechanic with nouns one in every 10 lil noun actually goes to the nouns treasury and so it's created this like symbiosis between these two projects that has led um nouns stakeholders to feel like they have now like this ownership interest over this Lil Nouns project. I think it was a, a pretty um, sharp design decision for the Lil Nouns fork to do early on, just to like create a tight, tighter bridge between these things. In terms of how they've been managing the treasury, so far they've only, uh, in terms of like allocation spend, the only thing that I've seen so far is they actually bought a noun. Um, so to deeper align these interests, it, they spent I think like 86 or 85 ETH buying noun 287 um, from nouns, um, which then has the effect of like now both of these projects own, have exposure to each other. There's like a deeper tie. So I think, um, you know, it's yet to be determined. Listen, like, I think we're in a world where the, the, the stuff that's happening, these experiments that are being run are like directionally interesting, but the execution of them are still not quite up to speed. Like there's no question a centralized group can operate at a much faster speed and cadence than a decentralized group of stakeholders. Although I will say to Maria's point, like there is something very defensible about the fact that these projects are now being backstopped by large amounts of ETH. Like that, there yeah. is interest there that allows these things, the flexibility to grow in new directions over time. The last point I'll make just around the nouns is I've been also tracking the nouns project for the last year. I have some exposure through DAOs that I'm in. And I'll say my big, uh, like I would say my big problem area as a collector in engaging with this ecosystem is by throttling demand in like these 24 hour chunks, it's had the byproduct of making it so that the price of these things at auction go at, at pretty high prices. So like I'm looking mm -hmm. at now 333, which is being bid on right now, the auction's going on, there's two hours left. And the current bid is almost 92 ETH. These auctions are pricing out 99.9% .9 of all humans, right? Or like all potential stakeholders of this ecosystem. And it, it's, that, which is, you know, totally fine. Like there's or, large organizations that pull capital together and can make meaningful change across the world. Um, but my view, like the reason why I got into this space, the reason why this technology is so exciting is to afford, you know, create a system of credible rules that allows anybody to participate. Like that's why, what drew me to Ethereum early on. So anyone could build on this like credibly neutral infrastructure. And so I would say the big limitation with nouns is that it had the byproduct of just affording people who could participate in this, who had the capital to participate, to be able to participate. 
which leads to like a lack of diversity in the stakeholder group. Lil Nouns kind of throws, it kind of solves that problem by creating this bridge back to nouns and by creating a price point that's much, or a cadence that's much faster. So every 20 minutes, every 15 minutes, it doesn't throttle demand in the same way. Prices then go down and these things are now, you know, moving at auction for 0.4 ETH, 0.45 ETH, which creates more diversity. I think there's twice as many little nouns holders now than there are nouns holders. And at scale, you could see a situation where depending on the cadence and depending on the price of these little nouns, that the, the treasury ends up getting bootstrapped at a faster rate than nouns at 90 ETH or 80 ETH a day. So there's some interesting mechanics here. This is very much a wait and see, and I would call this very much in the experiment bucket, but these are the types of experiments that are like fun to talk about and geek out with you guys. Yeah, it's been interesting seeing the DAOs interact with each other. I don't know if the if the noun, that little noun style bot is the same one, but I saw that the noun style um, actually approved a proposal to sell a noun to little nouns. Um, yeah. At a that was, at that was, that was it. <laughs> yeah, I think it ended up being like closer to 80th, I think. Oh, okay. Or maybe it was a slightly different proposal, but that that okay. is a, that is functionally what ended up happening, which is pretty fun yeah. to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, when the when the nouns do have that one out of every 10 goes to the quote they call it the nounders, is that the same thing as the treasury or is that a, a different subset of of people? That is different. So there are no na- so when the nouns the every one in 10 for nouns um those goes to the founders, not to the treasury. The treasury is all of the ETH that gets that gets generated at auction. So if I bid 92 ETH on this noun 333, that ETH goes directly to the treasury to get managed by all the noun holders. Understood. So there is no, yep. And have the, have the founders done anything with those, those kind of nouns that they've been receiving? My understanding is that none of those nouns have actually been touched yet, but um, someone closer to the ecosystem may be able to correct that in the comments. But my my understanding is that none of them have been sold or touched at this point. And we have, have we seen any like massive uh, proposals go through on the noun side? I mean, they have such a massive treasury. Is there, is there anything that they are doing with this, this ETH? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you, if you navigate over to the, um, there's a, a DAO section um, that allows you to kind of see the different proposals that have been created. Um, there's almost 90 proposals that have been created so far, and a number of the green ones have been executed. You can see that there's a coffee shop, a book in development, the sale of noun to a little noun, to little nouns treasury. There's apparel, there's a documentary. Um, there's uh, all sorts of esports. There's all sorts of stuff that's like being debated and talked about in these community, in the nouns community, and similarly the little nouns community. Um, I would say like the veracity and the effectiveness of these proposals as they like leave a mark in terms of like the greater industry and like the greater profile of nouns, I think is yet to be determined and tracking these metrics will be interesting, but uh, very much early days. And there are things that are being run and experiments that are being done with that treasury, uh, but it will be interesting to see what happens when we're not talking about 25,000 ETH, but we're talking about 50,000 ETH or 100,000 ETH and how that treasury gets leveraged over time. Yeah. They recently Crazy. also had this um, this luxury sunglasses proposal, which I found pretty, pretty cool because the idea is that um, there will be these NFTs that you can redeem for the iconic nouns glasses. But... Uh, within the proposal, so I don't know how this is actually going to get implemented, but within the proposal, something like um, 7% 
of the supply of the glasses, NFTs, will go to the nouns treasury. So again, I find it super interesting that this treasury is not only building up ETH, but eventually you can imagine that it's building up an index of its own ecosystem projects mm-hmm. as well, which is, um, w- which I think would be really, really powerful, and, you know, for, for nouns holders to be able to, to direct that treasury wherever it, they wanted it to go. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, they could diversify into anything, really. Like, I remember, Derek, when, when you and I were back in, in Marfa, and there was talk about, you know, a Marfa DAO and, and acquiring land inside of Marfa for the art blocks related stuff. I mean, there's no yeah. reason why a big a treasury couldn't come in there and start really diversifying into a whole slew of real world assets, you know, which would be pretty crazy. A hundred percent. I think this is where it's important to watch these experiments as they're happening in real time. Um, the promise of them isn't hasn't quite been realized, but Kevin, I think what you're getting at is we could start to see some pretty wild stuff here in the coming years. Now, on the collector front, you know, when we talk about little nouns, you know, these being dropped every 15 minutes, um, you know, there's this is a pretty expansive pie of little nouns that are being created. Um, I, I love, you know, and I will go and buy one just out of the pure curiosity, participation. Let's have fun. Let's participate in the DAO. Let's see it. Let's kick the tires and see how's, how this works. But with so many coming out, you know, over the next, let's just say, decade, it's hard to imagine serious value accrual take place here on the indiv- at the individual noun level. Yes. I get that the treasury will grow, but, you know, there's not really scarcity attributes. There's none of those classic things that we look at when we think about collecting, um, you know, with, with the actual NFT increasing in value. Do you agree with that? Do you both agree with that? Yeah, th- it's, it's actually required me to, like, shift the way I think about value accrual, thinking about th- this project. Um, and I totally agree, Kevin, like it's, it's, um, it's not quite clear exactly why these things will become valuable. I can tell you some data points of, of why these certain ones are trading higher than others right now, or what I think happens when you have a network that's much larger in the future. So I can go into that bit and then, but, but by no means do I feel like I have any concrete certainty on how this shakes out. Um, there's definitely been a trend both on the noun side and little noun side where aesthetic nouns and little nouns go at a premium. Um, Maybe it's a trait that hasn't been generated as frequently yet. Maybe it's a trait that looks clean. And like uh, there was a, a noun skeleton um, with a, a, a cap, a blue cap and a blue shirt um, that looked amazing that was just picked up by a collector and went for, I can't exactly remember, I think it was maybe 2x the typical auction price mm. um, over on the noun side. So we're seeing dynamics like this that are starting to play out. I would say numbers are also interesting. Um, so it was clear that the ones the little nouns that were generated before 50 are more valuable than the ones that were generated before 500. And the ones that were generated before 500 were, are more valuable than the ones that were generated before 1,000 and maybe 1,500. Like we've seen some uh, premiums uh, and discounts happen around these like these different numbers around even odd and also around um, just like these tranches of buckets. I would this say has nothing to, your, to do with additional benefits. It's a purely subjective, just yes, like purely subjective. lower number. Yeah, exactly. And then the the last vector I'll say, which is I think the most interesting one, um, which is what happens after the first year of little nouns when there's 20,000 of these or in year two when there's 40,000 or in year three when there's 60,000 and so on and so on. Does Do these individual little nouns actually 
stay valuable. And I think there's two ways I look about the first is it depends on what the treasury looks like at that point, because I think the treasury, the ETH based treasury will naturally act as a backstop for each individual unit that participates in this ecosystem. And then number two, uh, or a part of that is like, have, has the ETH treasury been able to be wielded or used in a way that's created more value for the treasury and the little nouns holders. And so like you could see a situation where based on the design decisions of how that treasury is used, these things, these the ETH-based treasury is actually more valuable or there's more things in the treasury that are uh, that a- are additive to just an ETH-based treasury that makes the little nouns more valuable. The last thing I'll say is we, from a demand side, which is like the big question, we're certainly at a point in time where the d- demand to eat that much supply currently doesn't exist in the NFT space. 20,000 is a lot of units. The only collection, there's a few, but I think the only collection with any lasting impact that has had um, a, like numbers greater than that in terms of holder base is the land sale by Yuga. I think it's 34,000 unique holders of that project. Mm. And I think the floor is somewhere around like 2.8 or 3 ETH. So it's held up well. I would say it's still early days for collection sizes of, of 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. But as we go from 2 million people interacting with NFTs um, to 50, to, I'm sorry, 2 million to 50 million to 100 million to 150 million, I expect we're going to have very large collection sizes, very large networks that are getting built out and enough demand where all of a sudden that every 15 minute cadence may actually look too slow yeah. just by virtue of the amount of people that are coming into the space and how quickly the glo- like globally people are interacting with NFTs and, and Web3 technology. So mm-hmm. those are the things I'm thinking about right now as, as it relates to the, the speed and cadence of Lil Nouds. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I do think there is a there there is yeah. I mean, first of all, there is scale to think about, which is that in the grand scheme of things, if we think about mainstream adoption for NFTs, something like little nouns may may even be not enough for you know for the holders uh, for for majority holders to come in. But I think the second thing is interesting, which is can little nouns be backstopped by its treasury? And I I do think high emissions. NFT projects, um, of which there aren't that many right now besides little nouns, but these these collections that have tens of thousands, you know, and perhaps one day hundreds of thousands of NFTs will have to look for completely new value accrual mechanisms. Um, you know, so one thing could be, yeah, it's backstop by the treasury. Another thing could be the treasury just goes and stakes its ETH, earns a yield, and then gives those gives that yield out as dividends or something, right? There are, there are ways that value can accrue. Um, and then lastly, I think what's going to be really interesting is to see perhaps experimentation in, in composability here as well. I saw someone joke on Twitter and I actually really hope this comes true, but someone was like, hey, what if you took like 12 little nouns in a trench coat and wrapped it up into like a, a giant noun? Um, and I think that that's <laughs> like, that's the kind of experimentation that'll be really interesting, right? Imagine if you could you know, for for every 10 little nouns that you own, you could wrap it into another noun. And that noun actually gives you like multiples of governance power. So let's say mm. you wrap 10 little nouns and you actually get 20x, you know, or like 2x your your governance power. And yeah. that becomes really valuable in order to accrue a noun. So I think there are all sorts of interesting mechanisms that can come yeah. out of this. I'll add, I'll add to that because I think this is such a fascinating line of discussion. Um I think the first thing I'll say is like this stuff is very plastic. Like digital objects are very plastic in their ability to accrue value. Um, 
there's all sorts of ways you can tinker with the parameters of how these things accrue value over time to make them more valuable. And if a community decides and locks in on a certain direction, all of a sudden you can find yourself in a situation where you're able to create massive amounts of value for things that the day before weren't able to just by virtue of this being code-based technology. The other thing I'll say is there's something interesting to me when you have in by the end of year two, 40,000 little nouns holders or 60,000 little nouns holders mm -hmm. or 100,000 little nouns holders, <clears throat> being able to fork technology or fork DeFi protocols or fork other projects and have ownership, give ownership back to the little nouns holders or the DAO holders and have a built-in supply and demand side for that protocol. So as just a thought experiment, what happens when there's 100,000 little nouns holders, they fork Uniswap and all of a sudden they deem all, they, they, all of the trading that happens, happens on that fork of Uniswap. You have a built-in supply and demand side that are using these protocols and value is accruing back to mm. the DAO holders. There's some really interesting thought experiments that happen when you have that sort of built-in connectivity between holders with lined ownership interests. Mm. I think the days of exploration around this are still early, and I'm very excited to see how these experiments run their course. Mm. That's, that's, a, that's a fantastic point, because in some sense, you know, it, Dixon talked about this, these thousand true fans that you have to have, you know, for any successful project. And, and here you're talking about large groups of people aligned behind a, a value or a mission that are collectively working together and can, can literally like make an industry or make a new, exactly. a massively new segment of any industry. And that they can, if they decide to pounce on something, yeah, you know, and you have a hundred thousand people that say this is the new hotness. Like that could blow yes. up and and absolutely make something. Uh, you're 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 a a I don't know how the the PC word it was called kingmaker, but like a king or queen maker, I guess. Totally at, at some point, <laughs> and be able to just do that in in with one Dow stroke. You know, it's it's crazy. totally. It is yeah. wild to think about, and it gets back to I think this is a very social technology and it's all about communities and it's all about aligned interests and ownership with that communities have with one another. And these early experiments, nouns and little nouns and some of these others are really at the bleeding edge of what can get created when you have aligned interests at the community level. Yeah. So it's going to be a wild next decade, Kevin, but, uh, we're, we're, we're still in, the, we're still in early days there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next uh, topic, but just to wrap that, uh, and then if you have, all have anything else to add, but I will say just to do some back of the napkin kind of math on this to give people a sense of where these will be at a decade from now, Little Nouns uh, 10 years from now will be at 350,000 NFTs distributed, uh, assuming that, that they're all purchased. If there is some type of lull and, and some don't get purchased, then that won't be the case. And then Nouns will be 3,650 at the 10-year mark, which is... Um, it's a big difference. Very big difference. Pretty. Thanks for doing the math there, Kev. Yeah, no problem. Uh, all right. So moving on, I'll, I'll take the next story. Uh, and then Maria would love to you to jump in and take a story as well. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I always look for in, in, in my personal collecting are artists. I, I'm a big fan of one of one artists. You know, I love these crazy nouns projects. I love the composability and all the, the craziness with all the smart contract novelty that happens from time to time. But I also, you know, like to go out there and find, you know, the X copies of the world and some of these artists that you look up to and say, wow, they just make amazing art and they're great yeah. artists. And, you know, they typically for me, that means I'm collecting on, on super rare or, you know, some platform where 
Um, it's mostly on ETH, but I, I would say there is a lot of stuff on Tezos that is also pretty interesting on, on more of the indie side. But one of the artists that I was uh, turned on to a while ago was Gossamer. And, and Gossamer is uh, a, a fantastic artist that has done a handful of different projects. Um, she was art director and lead artist for the Woody's NFT project. Uh, you know, she's a member of, of um, UltraDAO. She's a, a Filipino um, black artist and a tattooer as well. Uh, wonderful human. And I was lucky enough to get her to participate in the Grails offering that we did over at Proof. Uh, she was Grail artist number 10. And the thing that blew me away about her artwork, uh, and I linked it up there for you all in our little spreadsheet that we're going on. If you look at Grail artist number 10, that link there, you'll see that she did this amazing um, dragon called Iteration Zero. And the thing I loved about it is when she, you know, we kind of said, okay, you're going to do Grail. And she's like, okay, I'll, I'll create something, get back to you. Mm-hmm. And she came back with this animated dragon that she had created in a Google spreadsheet. So her actual wow. tool was not Photoshop. It was not any of these, you know, iPad drawing tools or anything like that. She made this entire thing in a Google spreadsheet. The creativity that comes out of her is just insane. And so I've always been blown away by her as an artist and a deep thinker and just doing really fun, interesting novel things. So I was pretty excited to see her launch um, Tiger Bob, which is her latest release. I'm not sure if you all saw it, but it's 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 these beautiful little retro tigers that um, she only launched a thousand of them. And they're kind of her Genesis project that she plans to kind of be as the anchor, um, almost like I won't say utility, but it'll it'll play into the other things that she does later down the line. And I was just really proud that she sold out immediately, had a ton of demand. Um, you also, if you own one of these, you can contact her and I believe she's open to do an actual tattoo on you of the actual NFT as well, which is pretty awesome. So you kind of get tattoo rights with her. Um, so it's just a a really fun collection. It's not something I'd, I'd highlight and and say huge congrats to, to her. And to be fair, I do, I do own some of these as well. So I am, you know, talking about my own bags here. I always want to be as transparent as possible, but, um, yeah, I just, I just love these and didn't know if you all had any. Uh, know her at all or, or had any background there. So I watched the the Grails. Um, so I participated in the Grails drop and I saw this this one early and I thought it was fantastic. You know, uh, um, what's fun, to th- like I, it, she used um, Google Sheets and then animated it in Adobe Photoshop, which I think is just like amazing. You know, I, I always think about this. It's like looking up looking back across time at like what is valuable it's it's it, in terms of like art and contemporary art it's um the thing that i you know it that art valuable art is is it's a response to previous art movements but it's also a response culturally or temporally to the things that are happening around us at that point in time mm-hmm. and this idea of being able to monetize a digital object that was birthed from google sheets and adobe photoshop <laughs> uh is just like it's so mind-bendingly cool um Amazing artists, very conceptual. Uh, haven't dug in yet to this one, but excited to kind of research more. So thanks for flagging this one, Kev. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, had, I talked to her about her creation process around the Google Sheets thing. And, and she said to me that she, um, when she had a day job and she was doing spreadsheets all day long, she used to be known as the person in the office that just made like these beautiful spreadsheets. So she would like really so take her time awesome. to like align them and make them look all pretty and everything. And everyone would be like, your spreadsheets are so beautiful. And so she was like, I'm just going to make something badass out of a Google sheet. So I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah. awesome. What's so funny is um, when I went on the Tiger Bob website um, 
earlier, I saw that the allow list was a Google sheet. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's scrappy. But I didn't realize that was, that was a running theme throughout. Um, yeah, I heard your, I heard your episode with her and I thought what was really interesting is that she talks about this ability for her to own her art for the first time. And she doesn't even mean that in the, you know, hey, I, I used to put digital art out, you know, and, and now I own my digital art. What was super interesting, the point that she made, which I never thought about before, is that she, you know, she makes physical art as well. Mm-hmm. But as soon as she takes a photo of that physical art and uploads it somewhere, she actually loses ownership of that. And, and you know, being able to produce NFTs is actually a way for her to, to own all of this again. Um, I just thought that was super interesting when she brought that up. Yeah, I love that she's also doing these as like handmade, you know, this isn't like a crazy uh, generative process for her. Yeah. Like she she really um, took the time and I, I've been kind of following her journey from making these for several months back. And, um, you know, she's put in so much time and effort into to hand doing these. And um, also, I just love to see, you know, more black artists getting involved and out there. And, and I want to try and do everything I can to get more exposure to up and coming black artists as well. Um, you know, either through Grails or other projects that we're doing. So it's just fantastic to see um, her breaking through in that space as well. So definitely one to check out. So if you haven't checked out Tiger Bobs, they started out at the 0.25 ETH Mint. There's been a little over 2,000 uh, ETH in volume. So so great for her and excited to see what she does long term. Awesome. All right, Maria, you down to jump in with the story? Yeah, let's do it. Um, one thing I have been thinking about a lot, and actually this is a really good transition from Tiger Bob is, um, you know, is the state of the world that we see today in the NFT space, in the NFT marketplace space, something that's going to endure forever. And what we see today is largely, um, you know, dominance of OpenSea over the market in terms of the amount of sales that's going on. And I think what's really interesting is um, I started tracking the NFT space. Um, you know, I started tracking it in 2018, but in 2020, when I started seeing a lot of artists getting into it, um, that's what really piqued my interest. And I, I did this survey around like, you know, this is before people kind of figured out what are NFTs, you know, who's who's kind of minting this? What is this even for? Um I I was just curious for the people who are minting NFTs, like who were they and what were they doing and why were they doing this? So I put out this survey to um, to everyone I could find online on Twitter who was tweeting about the NFTs that they were minting. Um, at this point, I think it's like uh, you know early 2021, and I ended up getting responses from uh, 200 people, more than 200 people, and. It was some really crazy number. Let me look it up. But um, yeah, 54.7%. So more than half of the people who were creating NFTs in this sample um, at that point in time in early 2021 were from the art and design space. And only 6% was engineering, 8% crypto. So first of all, it was just fascinating that People were coming in who were not in crypto, who were entering crypto for the first time through NFTs. Um, But second of all, I think that's actually a very, like, I I think if you were to do the same survey today, I think the responses are going to be drastically different because actually what's happened through the course of 2021 is the narrative really flipped 
in 2021, um, in early, you know, late 2020, early 2021, I think the narrative was really around artists realizing NFTs as a tool of empowerment. And, um, and around that time too, in the, in the NFT marketplace space, um, OpenSea didn't actually dominate. They did have quite a bit of market share, but um, market share was also taken up by Rarible. Um, you know, foundation really played a big role. There were all these marketplaces. Um, you know, if I, I also in the same survey, I asked people what they used. Most people actually said they used Rarible, followed by OpenSea, then Foundation, and then Maker's Place, Super Rare, Mint Base, Known Origin, all of these kind of marketplaces and minting platforms that we don't really get to hear about anymore. Um, and I think what what ended up flipping the narrative was PFP projects. Um, and this, you know, Bored Apes taking off, PFPs taking off in general meant that OpenSea were, uh, OpenSea was one of the first to start integrating with them and supporting them. And then all of a sudden, if you look at the market share charts around this time, um, you can kind of see them in Dune Analytics. OpenSea went from having around like 50% market share to effectively 100% market share um, just off the off the back of this trend. And I think one interesting thing I've been thinking about recently is, is that trend going to continue? Because we're starting to see kind of subtle shifts happening with aggregators like Gem um, and Genie with looks rare um, coming in and offering uh, token rewards targeted at increasing floor liquidity. Um, and that's been really interesting to me because I think NFT marketplaces, as we've seen them today, also almost look like Amazon, right? It's like you just take Amazon and then you, Amazon, but make it NFTs. Um, but as we've talked about, NFTs are this like new, it's, it's this completely new asset type um, experiments are still happening. And so I think there is this meta question, two meta questions. One is just what do NFT marketplaces look like? Um, will they continue to kind of look like this Amazon traditional marketplace structure? And then the second thing is, you know, will, will OpenSea continue to dominate? Because you do see um, for some of the collections, like we're going to die, <laughs> we're going to die on Gem, about 30% of the, the, like the cheapest floor ones are coming from marketplaces outside of OpenSea now. And then you also have projects launching their own NFT marketplaces. We talked earlier about how, you know, perhaps Little Nouns could also launch their own marketplace. Um, so I, you know, all of all of these factors I think are coming in and and there's this starting to be this pull, I think, away from everything happening on OpenSea. But I'm really curious how how you two think about it. Yeah. It, it's it's a good question. I, I you know for me it's um, I I was frustrated for a long time with just the navigation and usability of OpenSea as a consumer. And mm. so when things like Gem and others came out, I was like, okay, this is performant. This is fast. This allows me to get at the data that I'm looking for mm. a lot quicker than than what's happening in OpenSea. Um, I, I had chatted with some folks over there on the engineering side and. It's clear to me that they're going through a complete refactoring of their back end to, to, to try and address a lot of these issues. Yeah. Um, OpenSea for me, yeah, you're right. It's like an Amazon or an eBay. Like it's just like right. a place where I go when there's a massive collection that I want to sort through. Um, when I think about the stuff that I collect outside of that, whether it be the one of one artists or 
some of the other pieces, it's it is very specific to the platform, right? Like I'm 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 going on super rare because I'm looking for a certain artist, right? And I'm not going to use OpenSea to traverse that and and find that information. So, um, yeah, it's it's I it really depends on on where things are headed in terms of, you know, are there certain verticals that um that that can warrant their own platforms like in our right. blocks right? right and yeah but but some of these i i kind of feel like you know i don't want to name names on the platform side but some of them seem to have lost a lot of momentum yeah they just you know i i, I don't there's a few of them that i just don't even go to anymore yeah. uh, because it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot going on there uh derek what's your take yeah i think you're you're hitting at um some of what i'm seeing as well i i think I, I like to think about it in terms of jobs to be done. And so like the jobs to be done for me, if I know exactly what I want to buy, like I know exactly what I need, I need, I probably will end up at like more of a mar marketplace or like an Amazon like experience like OpenSea because I can quickly search for it, land on the collection and buy it. If I want to floor sweep, that job to be done isn't really being served to me as a collector on OpenSea in its current form. And so I would mm -hmm. naturally navigate to an aggregator where I know it is more performant and I have a quicker visibility in terms of floor price and that job to be done is more suited for a platform like a gem or a genie. If I don't know what I want, so let's say that I have, I'm a willing buyer of a collection and I have X amount of ETH I'm willing to spend, um, I wouldn't end up at either of those places, right? Like I, I don't, I'm not gonna, like OpenSea isn't well suited for me navigating the virtually millions of like possible NFTs I could possibly buy. It's just not set up in that way. And floor sweeping isn't necessarily suited for me because I don't know exactly what I want in that moment. And so it becomes a question of discovery. And that mm -hmm. discovery job to be done right now is much better suited for two places, vertical marketplaces. So things like Artbox is a vertical marketplace for generative art. Super Rare is a vertical marketplace for one of one curated crypto art. Quantum is a vertical marketplace for photography and NFTs. Um, and so on and so forth, right? And I think these vertical marketplaces have been able to do very well because they're able to build experiences that are very hyper-focused and optimized for that specific NFT style. They can yeah. make their artists heroes. They can build functionality into the art and how it's presented in ways that gets lost or translated on these more generalized open marketplaces. The second place, if I don't know what I want, so like we're, we're still in this discovery of like, how do I, what do I buy if I am a willing buyer, but I don't know what I want to buy? The second place is something like, you know, um, a gallery.so or, um, or, or DECA or some place whereby I'm presented with curated collections from people I trust mm -hmm. who are signals to me about what I might, about potential purchasing behavior for myself in the future. So if I just look across like the options, the option set for all of these jobs to be done, it's clear to me that like a bunch of them don't have to do with OpenSea or in, at least in this generalized marketplace model. And I think as more categories of value start hitting these blockchains, as more types of NFTs that require very specific experiences, as more people start interacting with this technology, I think what we'll find is more and more people will behaviorally trend to these other places because they serve those jobs to be done in a way that's more effective. Yeah, I don't think anyone's won the kind of curation piece of it in a way that's meaningful to me. Like when I think about where I go to um, find new projects. It is almost always 
either I see a tweet about something and I see momentum behind it, meaning like a lot of a handful of other people that I respect and follow are also getting into that project. And then, then all of a sudden that's a signal for me to spend more time there, right? Hmm. Or it's a DAO that you're a part of, you know, Flamingo DAO or something like that. And you hear about some new and up and coming project. Um, I, you know, I, I, I see what Coinbase was going for when they were trying to figure out like, okay, you follow these people and this will show you the latest stuff, but it just, they just missed it for some reason. Like it, it, it felt, it fell flat on yeah. me. It, it just didn't feel, yeah. Yeah. it didn't feel very web three native. It felt like it was, it was, they were just trying to do an Instagram for NFTs or something. And it just, it, but it, they kind of just didn't get it in any way. Yeah. So, you know, I look at, I do other things too. Like I use uh third party tools to follow whale wallets. So whales, not in the sense of just people that are buying up a ton of stuff, but, but collector whales that I, I know mm. have a good eye for these things. And when I see there being overlap there, then that's another signal. So yeah, there's not like any one perfect solution yeah. um, for that. That's what we try to do a proof though. You know, it's, it's kind of what we want to do. And part of the reason we're doing this show is it's, it's kind of this idea of, of curation with a point of view, you know, like the, we're mentioning mm -hmm. these projects because we're excited about them for some reason. It doesn't mean they're good investments, but it, it means they're interesting in some capacity, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of what you just said resonated with me, Kevin. And um, just to, to add in terms of other places, so Proof is an amazing source of quality curated information being kind of run through the ringer by a community in real time. So it filters out a lot of the noise and, and folks can get some really great insight into things that are interesting based on community feedback. Flamingo, DAO, and a number of the DAOs are great sources of that. Twitter can be an amazing source of that. And then to your point, things like Nansen and Dune Analytics and some of these these uh, providers, these tooling providers that are basically creating UI for uh, activity that's happening on chain is an immense source of, of, of value for folks that are trying to like, you know, figure out what's next for themselves as collectors. So uh, yeah, heavy plus one on, on all that you and Maria uh, have said here. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I agree fully with what both of you have said. I think what's just kind of pulling out the, you know, some of the, some of the key insights that I've heard from both of you, it seems like kind of the social purchasing is a really, really important part of NFTs. And that's certainly not fulfilled by an Amazon-esque or even, you know, like an eBay-esque right. experience. And I think truly, you know, it's it's possible that no platform yet has that, has really nailed that kind of social purchasing behavior. The closest you know, that maybe, yeah, I agree. You know, I think there's some of these discovery platforms that are really interesting. Context comes pretty close too, because it, it's like a social media feed almost of other I haven't used context. Can you, can you point people that, to that URL? What is that? Yeah. It's, it's context.app, I believe. Yep. That's right. That's right. Um, the, you know, it, it, it's, it's effectively a news feed of what people have purchased, um, what they've transferred, what they've sold. And what's interesting is you can you can kind of filter by who you want to see, right? You can filter by, hey, I want to look at people who already own CryptoPunks. Um, they also have labeled wallets. Um, so you can look at certain whales. You can also look at, um, you know, cert certain DAO communities in terms of their wallets and, and what they're doing as well. I think that starts to get at some of the things that we're talking about. But yeah, I, I, it doesn't seem like a platform has, has completely nailed that yet. Yeah. A lot of these are trying to do very similar things. I use Moby.gg for some of this stuff. Uh, it's kind of similar. 
um, where I have a, a whole slew of different wallets that I put in there and then just kind of like sit back and, and watch as the real time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. All right. Uh, should we move on to the next story? Let's do it. You're up, Derek. Oh, all right. Well, um, this is going to be a two-part story. Uh, there's two projects in particular that I want to double-click on, and we can chat about both of them together. Um, and they both have to do with music NFTs. So music NFTs has um, is like a meme at this point. I think folks recognize that there's value to disintermediating how media gets created, outputs get put uh, together and sold at, at to, to end users. Right now, I think the, the most recent information is that Spotify artists typically between record labels, Spotify, and other intermediary players in that value chain, Spotify artists are only making about 12% on the dollar for, for the streams, um, which in the aggregate can be very, very tiny sums for folks who are spending their life dedicated to creating music. So unquestionably, there is a, like a problem with that value chain. And I think as we start to move from legacy infrastructure into Web3 architecture, um, it will make it easier for artists to be able to connect with fans directly and monetize in really interesting ways. And I, I wrote a piece about this a few years ago called The Audio Revolution Will Be Tokenized. Um, I would say the problem up until this point has been behaviorally, it's been difficult to figure out uh, what is the right playbook by which to make this happen. So there's lots of experiments that are being run with music that I think is slightly different than the experiments that were run with pure art, mm -hmm. just pure visual. Um, collectibles um, by virtue that like the the consumption of audio has never been with your eyes and so this medium is really good for you know connoting scarcity for digital objects that you can view and that anyone can view and you can flex them and you can put it as your pfp photo or hang it up in a gallery and everyone knows you own it um, where the consumption of audio has behaviorally been slightly different um, like historically and monetizing it has been a bit tricky. So there's amazing platforms that exist. There's Audius for, it's like a decentralized streaming platform. There's Catalog for one of ones. There's Sound for uh, lower editions, high quality drops. Uh, there's all sorts of experiments that are being run in the music NFT Petri dish. And I would say some of them are working and we're starting to see some collectors really gravitate, gravitate towards some of these things as not just collectible, not just um, sonically interesting outputs, but also collectibles in their own right. And there's artists that are starting to really take hold in this space. I would say the two most impressive experiments that I've seen recently are Angel Baby, which is a purely digital Metastar avatar. Uh, right now, it's a top three trending artist on Audius, and it's a fluff, uh, it's a fluff bunny. So, you know, fluff, uh, the from mm -hmm. the fluff community. Yeah. They purchased a fluff a year ago, and this they've created a whole storyline and backing behind this character. And uh, Angel Baby has already played live performances at Art Basel, at a mm -hmm. conference in LA, at South by Southwest, has dropped music videos and just dropped their first track, their first, um, their first NFT track this week. And it's already a top three trending song on Audius, and it was in the top five music NFT sales this past weekend. So, so I think it's really interesting. This, by the way, you're, you're saying all this where, where can i tune into angel baby oh, and where, where yeah, can I find so, these nfts so angel baby is at angel baby on twitter so a-n-g-e-l-b-a-b-y um the track that they just dropped is is called the other side it's an homage to uh to the board apes ecosystem and it's featuring gino the ghost who is a board ape the track sonically is very good um 
it, there's a reason why it's trending on Audius and why I think collectors are gravitating towards the 50 editions. The editions are also going to be used to help um, architect Angel Baby's storyline and character over the coming years. Um, so there's some flowback that's interesting with this NFT that's built in. Um, but I would say most importantly, like the thing that's most interesting about this experiment is that this is a digital avatar. Like this thing is putting on live conferences all over the world, is dropping real music and monetizing and, you know, in engaging with people on Twitter and engaging with people on Discord and TikTok and all these digital forums. And it's a purely digital character. There's no human uh, embodiment of this thing other than what you see, which is, you know, the digitized fluff, the, the digitized angel baby. It's my view that we're going to see hundreds of these things. And angel baby is really just a marker of what's to come, which is, you know, disintermediating even the human part of, of like music presentation and bundling it with music production in a way that brings life uh, to these characters over time, both socially, economically, sonically. Um, and so it's been really fun to kind of watch Angel Baby get its start over the last three or four months. And I think it's going to be a marker for, for how we interact with music in the future around the, these character-based storylines. So we're still early days. I mean, if you go to Audius right now and look at this Angel Baby track, 7,821 plays. Very so, early. So this is <laughs> we're, still we're pretty early. tiny. We're, we're, this is what gets back to my comment, which is like, it's kind of a meme at this stage. And so it's important to recognize like, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are happening here, but these are all experiments. And so I, yeah, I want to make sure folks know that we're still talking about drop in the bucket in terms of music consumption. Yeah. So this is great. How did you even find this? Like, I, I just clicked on their OpenSea, uh, the, the, the actual, the other side, Angel Baby. Uh, it looks like there's 50 items, as you mentioned, 33 unique old holders. The floor price is 2.5 and the volume is only 5.5 ETH. Like, yep. this is tiny. Where, where did you- Very tiny. Where yeah, yeah. You... So this was a Flamingo investment. Um, we invested in Flamingo and we've invested in NoiseDAO and a few of these, uh, a few of the other DAOs took an investment in Hume, which is the project that's creating a platform for these avatars to exist. It's a fascinating concept. So I'm watching it closely. Um, but yes, it is, we are still very early in the life of music NFTs. We're very early in the life of digital avatars that are creating these outputs. Um, but I think what we will see is hundreds of these things. And Angel Baby is just one of many of these things that I think will persist over time. And there's something really interesting about, um, you know, I, like the engagement that Angel Baby and I suspect other avatars will have with their communities over time that scales very well. Um, you know, you don't have to put them on a plane and fly them across the country to do a performance. Mm -hmm. you, you aren't limited by the fact that they want to take a vacation for a human may want to take a vacation for a month here or a month there. Um, and like, I think there's also something very interesting about digital outputs, digital avatars and other types of digital creation. When you put all of these things on these ledgers of value and start reorganizing them in really interesting ways, we start to unlock new use cases that we didn't have before when we were in a purely human based, uh, system of, of content creation and, and, and sonic creation. So uh, I just want to I just want to flag this for people that music NFTs are still very early. It's kind of a meme right now. There are some very interesting experiments that are happening. This is one of them. Uh, another is a, a project called Chaos, um, which is a it, to understand Chaos is to understand SongCamp first. So SongCamp is is like this Web three laboratory that really experiments the edges of music in Web three. 
They've been running these camps over the last year and a half. Chaos is camp three. And each project, each camp gets more and more wild, gets more and more ambitious, gets more and more weird. Um, So Camp Chaos is the third camp. And what they did was they brought 77 people together. This was across artists, visual artists, musicians, engineers, radio producers, economists, storytellers, and other operatives that are in the community. And over the course of eight weeks, they created 21,000 songs, um, 21,000 tracks. And each, it's composed out of uh, 70, I think it's 77 different songs or 75 different songs. I can't remember the exact number. It's 44 songs, but there's generative art that's paired with each one of these songs so that each track, each of those 21,000 tracks is all unique from a visual art perspective. I love this experiment. And again, it's definitely an experiment because it really leans into the principles of Web3. It's like around community formation, around value flows, you know, the, the, the 77 artists themselves, uh, they incorporated this really interesting split from a project called OX Split. So every time a primary sale happens, um, 72% of the primary sale dynamically goes to all 77 artists at the same time. Um, and SongCamp, the DAO, takes the remaining. And that same split exists in the secondary market as well. So 100% of the secondary royalty, uh, it doesn't go directly to the, the, the artists anymore, it goes to a thousand NFTs that were given to all of the artists in advance. Wait, so wait, the wait, 77, that last piece there. You, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. So, um, uh, there's of this 21,000 NFTs, a thousand okay. of them are called supercharged NFTs. Okay. And these supercharged NFTs were given to all of the artists, the 77 artists in advance. Every time one of these sells, there's a seven and a half percent royalty fee that's tacked on in the secondary market. Every time one of these sells in the secondary market, that that royalty fee, that secondary royalty fee goes dynamically to a split, a contract that splits it across all of the artists at the same time. And so mm. if you hold one of, or sorry, it goes to all of the a thousand supercharged NFTs. So it goes, being, it goes in terms of ETH. It gets split yes. to the holders of the 1,000 NFTs. Exactly. But this can't the, be dynamically done, though, because OpenSea doesn't support uh, splitting built in. So this is they're working with a project. I'm not familiar with this project, but um, I've looked into it a bit. It's called OX Split. And yeah. so they they functionally built something into the contract okay, that so you have to allows... Get- I get it. You get the royalty to go to OX Split. O- OX Split must power a contract. Exactly. Eat the built in to pay for the transactions and do the dynamic split. This is, exactly. this is the, the thing that's challenging about OpenSea. And it kills me that they don't support splits. Like we did this with Grails, right? Where we had 20 different artists and we want to split out the, the proceeds to each individual artist. Uh, we wrote it into the smart contract because there is a standard for it, but OpenSea doesn't support it. So it's like we have to yeah. do it manually every you know sixty days or something like that, which is a pain. Check in the out ass. OX Split. Yeah, I've, I'm well. not super familiar with it, but they uh, they functionally were able to achieve this dynamic split that goes to the artist based on cool. secondary sales, and um, which gets back to I think a through line of this conversation, which is again very early project, but I love where we're going because we're really leaning into this technology in this very democratic way. Whereas if you're a contributor to an art piece today, like it's, you know, the, from input to output in the music industry, it's rife with intermediaries that are just taking their slice each, each part of the way, which prevents people at the very end from having any sort of exertion over how those, that split breaks down over time. 
Here, it's all programmatic up front. It's much more democratic. These splits are happening in real time based on contribution. Um, and over time, these NFTs, these supercharged NFTs could be valuable. As more and more sales continue to happen, these artists now have the optionality to do whatever they want with those NFTs. They can continue to hold them, they can sell them, but it empowers the artists. It's just really fascinating economic model that they've built in here. Very much an experiment, but very much a cool experiment, whereby artists, these group of artists, these 77 artists are incentivized both at the primary and secondary levels. And um, it really brings value back to the people who created the value, which is much different than what we've seen with legacy infrastructure around music. Yeah, this is interesting, too, because you mentioned that the secondary is split automatically among the 1000 NFT holders, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is effectively spreading. It's it's spreading the risk around a little bit as well, because you as a as a single artist, you go in and you run the risk of, um, you know, you you could be very successful or not very successful. Um, or you could be middle of the line, right? But but you you effectively um, you you effectively get to he- get to hedge a little bit and mitigate your risks w- among a group of collaborators, and and everyone can win together, which is that's a that's a really really interesting. It's basically model. owning a piece of the label, right? The, the the artists are acting like owners of the label that have the artists that fall underneath that label and getting part of the split. Yeah, it really does compress, like it, it makes artists owners, right? And I think yeah. that's what this technology can be very valuable for is like, you know, really compressing the the ownership back to the originators of that value. Um, I would also just say the tracks sound amazing that, I mean, like, as you would imagine, taking 77 unique artists, having them work with each other, generating hundreds of unique, uh, you know, visual outputs that can be algorithmically generated to create unique visual art the sonic this the the sonically like there's rap there's hip-hop there's hip-hop there's rock there's pop music it's just a very cool collection and i um so impressed with their ability to pull it off within the camp chaos uh uh, structure the songs are really good i listened i had no idea there was this this really interesting kind of revenue splitting in the back end but yeah i've the songs are are great i definitely second that i'm curious derek when you think about what's going on in the the world of music nfts you know one of the things that that i'm i just don't quite understand uh you know the it seems like the people that are taking the biggest cut here are still the underlying labels like if you if you dig into the financials of say spotify like uh i don't have it in front oh yeah here we go so q1 of this year you know, 131 million in, in net income for Spotify. It, it's not a big profitable business. So, you know, they're servicing customers at scale. Uh, I'm assuming the labels are still taking the, the vast majority of that. Where's the world where this other NFT music powered world it becomes a, a, a big player? Because, yeah. you know, in some sense, you're, you're fragmenting I get it, like new modern infrastructure, creative splitting, artists own more, all of that. I'm still not going to get the Beatles on that platform, right? I'm still not going to get like, so is, is, the, is the future, I have my Spotify, I go there for the old school classics, and then I have this other app that I jump over to that has more of the modern indie kind of up and coming, like better monetization for them world. Is, is that how you see things unfolding? So such a good question. And I think it is like the fundamental question, which is when are we going to have real consumable outputs on decentralized infrastructure? And the truth is right now, 
these musicians are locked up and prevented from monetizing in ways that that empower them. They they are part of this legacy infrastructure and, and have are part of a system that's been around for a hundred years around how these royalties and rights shake out for musicians and artists. The truth is, is this technology, it doesn't play well with that legacy infrastructure. With those rights tied up, with like copyrights that are owned by at the out at the label level, with you know, all of the intermediaries that exist and are providing value in this legacy infrastructure, taking all of that fat and bringing it into Web3 Rails doesn't actually help the artist's income, right? Because they still need to pay out all of these people that they're obligated to contractually. So it's my view that the experiments that are being happening, that are happening here with Angel Baby, with, um, with um, Chaos, with Audius, these are tools that are going to be much more important for the next generation of artists, yeah. the independent yeah. musician. And if you believe that just given what we're seeing in hardware, like the development of hardware and home studios, what we're seeing with being able to music, create music and produce high quality music remotely, what we're seeing on the front end around like some of the engineering um, breakthroughs that we've had combined with Web3 Rails, though it's the combination of independent musicians and Web3 Rails that I think is going to make this industry really move very quickly once it gets going. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't solve the problem, which is how to get the Beatles on this stuff, because I don't think this technology. I don't think you ever solve well that, that problem. I, I yeah. think it's going to be, you know, Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube. It's going to be the next version of Justin Bieber that says, exactly. "Hey, I get Web three. I get this. I can monetize here. I'm not going to sign with a major label." Then all of a sudden, you know, you, go, you this listener count goes from four thousand to you exactly. know two, two, three, five million, and people are like, "Oh shit, this is this new indie platform." And you then you know. 2,000 other artists sign up and then, then, we, then we have something to, to pay attention to. Exactly. And I think the, for me as an investor, as a collector, it's important for me to understand that this infrastructure is being built in this way so that when the next Justin Bieber comes out, because this thing is going to move quickly once it does, once the next Justin Bieber comes out or the next great band or the next hip hop star that a public wants to continue. I mean, Chance the Rapper was a great example. He went completely independent, even though he had the attention of the entire world. And so he's been able to monetize directly outside of Web3 Rails, but I think it illuminates the type of path that one of these musicians could have in the future. They're just going to look at these Web3 Rails as tools in the toolkit and start dropping streaming tracks on Audius, start dropping one of ones on Catalog, stop, start dropping one of 25s on Sound, jump into chaos, the next instantiation of Chaos and create music with 75 other people or whatever experiments are being run at SongCamp. They're going to yeah. see all of these tools as tools in the toolkit to leverage and because that infrastructure exists, it can support that scaling that we know can happen when, when artists and fans really connect with one another. Let's talk about your bags real quick, Derek. Where are you placing bets yeah. in this world? Like, what do you what do you own it's on the so NFT hard. music front? Uh, I'm underwater on all of my music NFT. That's bags, okay. I just I'm just curious. What, but, what do you what do you hold? Like, out of these things yeah. that you've, you spoke about, do you hold any of these NFTs? Or are you? Yeah. So it's a, it is important for me to say like. I find this stuff endlessly fascinating, but from an economic perspective, there's just not enough demand right now to eat up to like that has an appetite to eat up the supply that exists in the music NFT space. It's my view that that changes. Like this technology is too good. You're not putting it back in the bottle. We're going to have hundreds of millions of people interacting with this technology in the future, but steady state, like these are not economically interesting investments. They're more fascinating experiments that are going to be the rails by which value gets created in the future. To actually answer your question, 
I think, uh, so I own one of the Angel Baby tracks. There's only 50 of them. I think it's a great song. I've probably heard it over 50 times. Um, and I, I want to be a part of that journey and see how it unfolds. So I, I bought one of those. In terms of the chaos drop, I've bought a lot of these. There's a lot of amazing music and amazing tracks that were created in this headless group, this headless band. And there's still a ton of, I mean, this project didn't sell out. There's still 3,000 of the 5,000 packs left. And with each pack, you get four songs. This is not what I would call, it's very much a slow burn project. But as a collector, as someone who enjoys this stuff, who loves this music, who wants to support these artists, who wants to see more of these experiments run, you know, I bought a bunch of packs. I've bought a bunch of these songs. I'm trying to collect the full set of all of the different types of songs that exist. So what um, do the packs run, by the way? I'm on chaos. It's chaos.build is the website, correct? Yes. Chaos.build. Oh, the packs run 0.2 ETH. Um, I think there's about 3,000 left of the 5,000 that were created. Each 2,000 left. Will, oh, 2,000 left? Oh, there's almost been 3,000 minted out of the 5,000 total. So there's a little over 2,000 left. Okay. Some, some something I, I, that sounds right. Um, and then uh, each pack is 0.2 ETH. It comes with four songs within each pack, and each one of those songs has a unique one of one art based on how it was generated and the different types of styles. There are also some very like very rare songs. It's called the Alchemy Collection. So there's um, three tiers of Alchemy. Um, I'm trying to collect all of those. I'm having a difficulty doing them because I'm not seeing enough on the secondary market yet. I'm ho hoping that more people start listing them. But my goal is to collect the full set here because I think it was such a cool experiment. And, you know, this is something that I think really pushes the space forward in terms of, you know, this angel baby, these are the types of experiments that I want to see run over and over and over again. And my view is some of these may end up being valuable in the future. Maria, I don't know if you feel this way, but every time I talk to Derek, I feel like I need to buy more NFTs. Like he just like tracks <laughs> me into this. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's uh it's both good and bad for my wallet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is none of this again, I always have to make this caveat, Kev. Like none of this is investment advice. Like I said, none yeah, of, of this course. stuff is actually yeah. economically valuable yet. Uh it's more just like it's so cool. And like I just geek out over all of it. I do a lot of that though, where I'll buy NFTs where I'm just like, I just want to pay attention to the project and I think it's yeah. really cool. And, you know, my, my thesis there is if this becomes something big, it may be a decade from now, I'll have had the, you know, origin story of that whole thing. Yeah. Right. So like, this is kind of one of those plays as well. Yeah. Most of the NFTs I hold or I buy because I'm interested in the project. I'm fascinated by some of the mechanisms and I think especially in a space that's so, I mean, this is on a personal level, right? So like, this is just kind of personal purchases I'm making. Um, for a space that's so volatile, like you really do want a reason beyond speculation. You want something that you can you can stick to throughout, um, you know, regardless of ups or downs, you can continue to be a supporter and be really fascinated and, and, and you know, be, be really kind of enthralled with the different um, creative yeah. mechanisms they're putting yeah. out. Absolutely. I know we're coming up on, on time here. Do you all have a few more minutes to stick around or do you, you have hard, hard bounces here? Let's um, do it. I can do it. Can you do another 10 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll just, I'll, I'll, I know I have, I would love to, to cover this freedom mint trend. I think is really interesting. The CC zero stuff is really interesting. I have one quick little, just, um, one story I'll mention out there, which is that quantum, uh, launched their new space, uh, with the quantum keys. It was in Santa Monica. I didn't get a chance to attend because I, my, 
niece had her high school graduation that I needed to attend. So I stayed back here for that. But uh, did either of you attend the quantum space launch in Santa Monica? I did attend. Um, How was it? I did get it. It was amazing. I think, um, you know, I think quantum is really showing that there is a desire for people to interact with this technology in physical spaces. The space was incredible. They had three days of events. I went on Friday and I mean, the energy was like palpable. Like there was, it was packed standing room. People were excited. I ran into people who I haven't seen in a decade um, that had no, I had no idea were even interested in this stuff that were now hardcore collectors of quantum art. Um, it was really fun for me to introduce them to Justin because they, I think they were very geeked out about meeting some of like the heroes of, of which they're collecting. Um, but the truth is, is like, you know, as we move out of the pandemic or into a version, a new version of the pandemic, um, I think there's just such this pent up desire for people to interact with this stuff in real life. Uh, it, it reminds me, um, you had this group on your podcast, Kevin, uh, Scab Shop, which is yeah. a, essentially a tattoo NFT uh, it's there's membership cards. It allows you to bid on one of one and uh, one of one tattoos that can then be applied or not applied, and it creates a marketplace for the art itself. It basically unbundles service provision and art uh, from like the traditional tattoo industry, which starts giving these artists like a, a, they're treating them more like artists, where the value that they're creating is actually can be captured through the art itself through scarce one of one digital objects. I. I won a contest with my scout shop pass at Beacon. Are you serious? My... Yeah. And I, uh, I got Wait, a tattoo. Wait, is that a real tattoo? From... It is. Scott Campbell tattooed me no in a way. van is outside that your first of Beacon. One? It's my first one. And oh my so, God. um, wow. I was speak, I was speaking at Beacon and, um, I had my scout shop pass. I entered into a pre-mint and I won, uh, the ability to get Scott Campbell, uh, an original art piece by him tattooed on my forearm an hour before. I was on a panel at VCon. And so I wow. raced over, did it, got inked. And it was an amazing, it's an amazing story. And it's a way that I think more and more this technology, you know, Web3 Rails is really starting to lean into these IRL experiences. Uh, and I think Quantum is proving that out. Scab Shop is proving that out. There's a number of really cool projects that are, are really at the bleeding edge of this. Bright Moments, Art Blocks. Um, so it'll be fun to see more, more and more IRL experiences get tailored into these mechanisms, these designs, these, uh, these projects over time. Scott Campbell is an absolute legend. I mean, he's just a, a legend in, in the tattoo yeah. world. So the fact that you have an original Scott Campbell is, is a big deal. That is, that is I so awesome. Um, cool. So, I mean, huge, I just want to say huge congrats to the whole quantum crew. I mean, what I, w I was there a week prior and I got a chance to go down there and see Jonas and, and, and check out the space, uh, before it launched. And I can't wait to throw some proof related events down there because it's going to be a space and for people that don't know um there's a an nft associated with it it's called the quantum key and if you have that it unlocks a whole slew of different benefits but including access to the physical space so you can go down there in santa monica hang out have a little workspace um have access to the kind of behind the scenes shop area as a quantum key holder so uh, they're kind of pioneering this idea of physical space associated with nfts which i think is is, is here to stay for sure and i would imagine it's a model that many will copy going forward. Yes. So it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, okay. So we're coming up on time. Um, Maria, one last story from you. Yeah. Well, um, what would you guys prefer? One is a general question. I'm kind of curious how you guys think about it is around CCOs and when do we think, you know, is it, is there something missing? What do we think is missing? Um, 
what does it take for these projects to take off? And then kind of more importantly, because they're by nature open and by design open, what does it take for a derivative um, to to take off from one of these CC0 projects? So that that's a discussion problem question. Um, and the second one I have is uh, one of People Pleaser's projects called The White Rabbit, which I find just so visually beautiful. And it's it's a film uh, told in chapters. And at the end of each chapter, uh, everyone can go and mint a uh, producer pass. And you then get to vote on the ending. And so the entire film at the end will be a kind of collective interactive project where the community actually gets a say in terms of where the plot goes. Um, so curious which, which one you guys want to dive into. No, those are both good topics. I'll let Do, you choose, Kev. Ah, gosh. Um, <laughs> I Well, the CCO one is kind of top of mind for me because of all the stuff going on with little nouns and nouns. Yeah, yeah, so let's yeah. do it. The cryptos and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Maria, you're, what's, your, what's your take on, on CCOs? So this is where I think nouns is really interesting because the question... So, so I think the question is, an, uh, is one around incentives and around economics, which is... Why do you choose to create something on top of a CCO project? And is there an economic incentive to do that? I think right now there's not a lot of kind of mech like there's there's not really a grab bag of mechanisms or kind of like a playbook that you can point to and say, like, oh, well, this is exactly, you know, that's this is exactly how I can economically tie myself back to the original project. The only reason that I can see right now for someone to create a derivative on top of a CC0 is that there's an existing large collector base, which is which is which is a lot, which is actually very fascinating because if you mm -hmm. do launch a derivative on top of CC0, you're launching into a known quantity, like you're launching into a known community of people who are interested in these projects, which is no small thing, but I do think there's a lack of direct economic linkages. And but that's where I think the Little Nouns and Nouns project is really interesting um, because Little Nouns is directly linking itself economically into nouns. And in some ways, the link kind of comes back, right? Because Little Nouns owns, um, a, I guess, one noun as well, that there there is a little bit of a of a um, I think, and, you know, Derek described it as a symbiotic relationship. But I wonder if there are ways to actually formalize that relationship a little bit more and, and kind of make that grow a little bit tighter, too. Yeah. And for people that don't know, real quick, the CCO or CC0 is the Creative Commons No Rights Reserved, which means that basically everything is public domain, right? So the name, the artwork, like if something is launched under that license, there you're, you're you can do anything you want with it either commercial or derivative works or whatever it may be that's i have that correct is that right you got it yeah. it's basically it allows anyone to creatively remix anything for commercial or non-commercial purposes yeah and and what we've seen so far is cc0s um really proliferating through the nft space and whenever there is a collection that takes off mfers is an example of a profile picture collection um that's it's kind of tongue in cheek uh, derivatives will appear and remix it. But 
it seems like, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems like that there's always a ceiling in terms of how much a derivative, you know, how successful a derivative can be. And I haven't seen yet a derivative be as or or even more successful than the original project. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in with a couple of thoughts. I think that's right. I think of uh, CCO as being a piece of the puzzle of what makes a project su- could may, may or may not make it successful, but it's certainly not like the the thing that will take yeah. a project from, you know, being not successful to being successful. Yeah. Like it's su- almost just like a... Yeah. Yeah, like, go ahead, Maria. I was going to say like perhaps necessary, but not sufficient. Exactly. It's like a tool in the toolkit. I would say for for many artists, so let's just say people who create generative art or scripts around generative art or one-of-one art, there's something for many of them that's uninteresting about people being able to creatively remix the thing that they've created for a commercial purpose. Yeah. Their intent was to create a standalone product and the they want the meaning of that project to ascribe purely to the thing that they created. And so for many artists, like I recognize that CCO is just like not a tool in the toolkit that's interesting to them. Like they they don't want that. They're that's not inspiring to them. It's not furthering their goals as an artist or a creative. And so there's no reason to like make a digital work part of the CCO paradigm because it's just like not the artist's intent. They want it to stand alone. For other artists or for PFP projects or for any other type of digital object, there are certain times where CCO is actually interesting. They want that derivative, that culture of derivative remixing to take place. They want people to commercialize it in new directions because it might bring, you know, it might bring haloed value back to the original. They want people to write memes and commercialize and build restaurants and create video games or whatever it may be around it because it, it, it creates a healthy network. So I would say the story around CCO is often, um, it's often like you're either for it or you're against it. And my view of it is just like, it's going to work for some projects. It's not going to work for others. And these types of nuanced conversations are actually really important to have because yeah. at the end of the day, it's just a tool in the toolkit and it may not yeah. make sense for you creatively or you artistically or you as a project to employ that tool, but it could also be a very powerful tool to wield for other projects. It's it, it. There's also the middle of the road, right? Where it's it's you want to give up some rights back to the audience and the holders. Where it's not a CCO, but it is like you know a board apes or a Moonbirds, where you say you own the artwork. You can go create the restaurant you want. You can go do anything that you want commercially, um, but you have to still protect the overarching brand so that yes. there aren't just knockoffs all over the place that are claiming to be the same value add that you are as a business, right? Yep. And so that's, that's the crazy world that, that I live in where, you know, <clears throat> we, we want to be as free and flexible as possible with the artwork, but we want to protect the brand so that we don't see a thousand clones appear on OpenSea and, yeah. you know, all of a sudden people think they're buying a Moonbird when they're not, or right. there's, you know, it's just, there's, there's, it's, it's very murky and very messy um, yeah. as this stuff yeah. unfolds. I'll, it's add, tough. I, I'll add to that. I think there's two discussions that you're ta- touching on, Kevin, which is, um, creative remixing of the art and the art itself and the art that you own, and also the intellectual property that exists with the name and the brand. Right. I would say Yuga Labs proved that you could bestow commercial rights at the in, in, in individual NFT layer while being very protective of the IP that exists on top, the Bored Apes universe, Yuga Labs Inc. The reason for the, for their decision is presumably to protect that IP and to make sure that nobody takes it over and confuses future consumers or tries to dilute the brand in ways that may mitigate the rest of the collection or um, commercially make things more murky for a public consuming market. 
And I would say there are pros and cons to having done that. Like I think, you know, creatively people think that all parts of a project should be creatively remixed. And I, I see an argument to that, but I also see that argument being outweighed for many of these projects when the goal is, the, I think you can thread that needle in the way that you just described, Kevin, which is allow this creative culture of remixing to happen at the artistic level, the visual objective level, while also protecting the, the name and which prevents people from confusing the collection with others to prevent people from commercializing it in directions that are actually dilutive to the rest. And so I don't think this story is completely told yet or written. I do think that these conversations are much more nuanced than the ones I see on Twitter. Um, yeah. I also yeah. am an attorney. And so I think about these things very deeply <laughs> and the pros and cons. And so um, it's conversations like these that I think help re folks recognize, I think, that there are many layers to these conversations and it's not just a switch you can flip on or off that that makes things right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel that the most successful CCO projects I've seen have been when there is some type of overarching DAO or kind of treasury component to it that has a mandate to go out and do something bigger um, with that. Uh, less so when you have an organization that already has a roadmap of things that they want to go out and create. Like for us at Moonbirds, you know, we we have the plan and playbook that we want to go and execute. So we want to be protective of that so we can go and build everything that we want to build and not have it be murky and confusing to the marketplace that or to the market out there. And, you know, it's there's a lot of parallels that kind of some of them align and others don't. Like the the Android versus iOS thing is is very interesting because you had Apple that came in and said, you know, this is our vision. This is what we're going to build. It's going to be our unique take on what a mobile operating system is. And then you had Android that came out and said, we're open source, remix, have fun, put your own skin on the front of it, you know, go crazy. And, you know, I was in a lot of those conversations with the Android team when I was at Google, and there were many people that were pissed off that they gave so much of the rights away of Android because it led to such a fragmented ecosystem of shit like there was just like phones that wouldn't upgrade to the totally. latest version of yeah. the os and out yeah. of date front uh, you know experiences or or hacked kernels or different versions of the os that couldn't apply security patches or updates and there's a whole mess that comes with opening things up but there's also a lot of creativity that comes with that as well so i think it's going to be on a project by project basis on on, on what 100%. we see going out there yeah i i wonder if there's also part of it is um you know again kind of What's interesting about Lil Nouns is that it's community sanctioned by Nouns. And I think that's actually going to be a really important component as well going forward for CC0 projects, because you will have derivatives exist regardless of what you choose to do. But perhaps some of those can be sanctioned by the original project. And if you are sanctioned, then that opens up some sort of two-way street where the treasuries can be mixed or merged, um, incentives can be aligned. And the original holders can can wholeheartedly back the new project. Yeah. Um, but then then you don't really have the commercialization of the project in interesting ways. Like one example would be, well, let's take Cryptodes, right? It's a CC0 project. Yeah. I could find a toad that looks badass. And I'm like, this is an amazing toad, right? I go, I buy it off of OpenSea. I pay five ETH for it. It's one of the rarer ones or maybe 10 ETH. And I put that on handbags and I sell these handbags and it's called the toads bag or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And they just becomes a, a cult classic and a hit and they sell like crazy. There is nothing. Now I'm an entrepreneur. Now I do not aff affiliate with cryptos in this, in this hypothetical. Yeah. 
and I go out there and I sell these bags, there's nothing preventing someone else from coming along and selling the exact same thing with the same crypto when it's a CCO because it's completely open to everyone. That That's right, right, Derek? I got that right legally? I believe that's correct. Or I, I at least believe it depends on what the output is that you create and whether or not you've protected that output. Um, so I'd have to so then like go and re-trademark that or somehow re- I think whatever the new output that you create may fall under a different set of analysis. And so like you may be able to commercial, like protect the commercialization of that output. But the, the real point you're making, Kevin, which I, which I agree with, is that like there is no economic incentive that exists for like people to create value out of cryptodes. Like there isn't any flowback that exists right, right now. If, I, right. if, if yeah. you buy a cryptode, commercialize it, like the, the rest of the cryptos holders certainly don't benefit. You don't yep. benefit from any anything other than the direct sales and efforts that you're able to do. And I think it gets back to this question that um, without like, a, it's just a piece of the puzzle, like CCO is not the thing that makes things valuable. Another piece of the puzzle here that would make cryptos more valuable in this situation is some incentive alignment between all cryptos holders, the new output that's getting created, the value that's created across every other cryptos holder, some treasury that gets voted on right. that takes that value and commercializes yep. in new directions. And so without that piece of the puzzle, like there's no, like there's no reason for people to want to commercialize this project in new and interesting yeah. directions. And I think it's all about trade-offs. It's clear that when you have a centralized team to create that value and go in really quickly in a certain direction, massive amounts of value can be created. We just watched, we've watched this happen over and over and over again. I would say the story is yet to be told. And I think nouns and little nouns are on the bleeding edge of this of what happens when it's more of a decentralized group creating that value. I think certainly value can be created and we'll see how good those outputs can be over time. Um, and there is diversity that happens when it's more decentralized, but you're trading off some of like the centralized efficiencies of project building and world building and creating product. So I love your analogy um, with iOS and Android. I think it's a fantastic one. It's all about trade-offs at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm a supporter of all of this stuff. Like there, it, it sh there shouldn't be one approach. It should be all sorts of people, all sorts of projects experimenting with different flavors of commercial rights, economic incentives. And frankly, um, that's what will create the most interesting stuff over time is not limiting in scope to one certain yeah. way to build something over time. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. But um, Kevin, I think one way that this could work in the scenario that you talked about is, you know, I think, Derek, you hit it on the head, is that what's missing in this scenario are the economic incentives, but you can imagine something like that playing out where um, if Cryptodes uh, has a treasury and the community, the DAO says, hey, Kevin, we, we sanction you to go, this is going to be a community sanctioned project. But in, in return for the community sanctioning this project, we need some uh, you know, we need some revenue sharing where where Kevin can say like, oh, I'm going to share 10% of my revenue. Or if your handbags are also NFTs, then I'm going to give you, you know, 10% of the NFTs or something like that. And that goes into the 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 treasury. Um, but if it's a CCO, then someone else, third party person could just come in and say, well, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing, knock this off and not not do the revenue share. Sure. But I think there is something important. So if the handbags were, were NFTs, right? Let's say they're NFTs. Oh, I see. If they're, those are NFTs. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if, yeah, if they're NFTs and they're redeemable for physical handbags, then I think you get into the situation where that collection is going to be sanctioned. And even if an identical collection comes around, it doesn't dilute the value of your collection. And what's also really interesting is if you can imagine back to our discussion about marketplaces, 
if there is actually a collection level marketplace here, right, where the community says, you know, we, we're not going to trade on OpenSea. We're going to have our own very, very mm. liquid marketplace. This is our where, official again, marketplace. Kind of, yeah, this is our official yes. marketplace. And only Kevin's handbag NFTs belong <clears throat> to our official marketplace where this is the most liquid market. Um, then again, this is how the value accrues back to your project. Right. But that still doesn't give you any recourse when it comes to seeing uh, that very famous then cryptoed appear on T-shirts on Canal Street in New York, right? <laughs> it <laughs> Although I don't think True. anything it does doesn't. at that point. Like those, that's pretty much when, it. I just need to know, when do we get the Kevin handbag? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Derek, if you want it, man, I'll make it. Done deal. Uh, I know we got to wrap things up here, but I just want to say this has been such a fun conversation with you two. And I wanted to, before, before we do, um, point people to where they can find you socially. So um, uh, Maria Shen, uh, Electric Capital, um, where can people find you on the Twitters? I am at Maria Shen on Twitter. Oh, easy. Easy, easy. Uh, and I'm uh, Derek. I'm Derek E-D-W-S on Twitter, D-E-R-E-K E-D-W-S on Twitter and um, Collab Currencies, Collab underscore currency. Fantastic. Well, let's do this again. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, I learned this a lot. Absolutely. We yeah. did too. This was a blast, man. Yeah. Thank awesome. you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Of course. We'll talk soon. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.